0: I want to take as my text this morning from Mark's gospel, the reading that we just had, or a portion of it, Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verses 2 through 9. And if you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1005. Mark's gospel, chapter 10, and beginning at verse 2. And this morning I want to talk about marriage and divorce And God's creative intent marriage and divorce and God's creative intent indeed God is our creator and one might imagine that God knows best the way to human flourishing (laughs) just as the manufacturer of a car is likely to know how best to maintain it and so God is our creator And God, our Creator's intent toward us, is good. (laughs) He's on our side, if you like. In fact, that famous verse from Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, God speaking through the prophet, he said this to his people, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And this principle of blessing and intent applies to marriage, I think, just as it applies to anything else in our lives. And still, approximately, in fact, I just checked yesterday, approximately half of all marriages that take place in the United States end in divorce, and so divorce is a relative topic, a a relevant topic, I should say. And that's how our text begins with this subject of divorce. In fact, it's relevant now and it was relevant then. In fact, notice again verses 2 through 4. And the Pharisees came up in order to test Jesus, to bait him, and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And so the Bible allows for divorce. The Pharisees knew that even before they began questioning Jesus. Indeed, in all likelihood, they were asking Jesus about divorce in a, an attempt to bait him, to, that he might say something that might ultimately result in his demise. Indeed, Jesus uh, and his disciples are in Perea. That is a district that was ruled by Herod Antipas. In fact, if you notice uh, verse one, notice and, and he left there. In fact, if you go to the antecedent uh, to that, is in the ninth chapter of, of Mark, where Jesus is in the Galilee, where he was from, his his home region. But he left there, and he went into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, or what we sometimes refer to as the Transjordan. or in that day was called the, the region of Perea. He came into the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and the crowds were gathering to him again and again, as was his custom. Indeed, Jesus was a teacher. And as was his custom, he taught them. And so here he was in Herod's district. Interestingly enough, in the same general location, it was John the Baptist who had criticized Herod Antipas, you remember, relative to the subject of divorce and remarriage. Uh, Namely, uh, John said to Herod that it was not right for him to take his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, whom Herodias had divorced, in order to marry Herod, And you will remember that John's criticism uh, cost him his freedom. He was imprisoned by Herod, and then eventually it cost him his life because Herod had him beheaded at the behest of Herodias. And it isn't at all hard to imagine that the Pharisees here are trying to orchestrate the same sort of end for Jesus. Let's talk about marriage and divorce. Of course it didn't work, it never did. As Jesus says in other places, my hour has not come. He knows exactly what he's doing, he knows exactly where he's going, he knows exactly where he's going to die and how he'll die. And it ain't in Perea. And so it didn't work. But anyway, the the Pharisees posed the question and Jesus responds with a question, interesting. They think they're in control, but he takes the control. In fact, uh, we think of teachers as the ones that give answers, but in ancient times and within the rabbinical tradition, the one who knows everything, the teacher asks questions, primarily. Sort of a Socratic method. And so the Pharisees pose their question, and then Jesus responds with a question. Notice again verses 2 and 3. Pharisees came up to him in order to ask him, to test him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? You tell me. (laughs) And then they make this reference to Deuteronomy 24. Notice verse 4 of our text. And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her, his wife, to send her away. In fact, we read in Deuteronomy, chapter 24, and at verse 1, and it says, And when a man takes a wife and marries her, if, he, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and that's rather vague, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, etc., etc., etc. And this is what they're referring to. But then in verse 5, Jesus explains why divorce is allowed in the law. Notice verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. Indeed, in Jesus' day, the common practice was, following the teaching and tradition of Hillel, The rabbi, who was actually a rabbi contemporary with Jesus, he was born somewhere around 60 B.C. and died in A.D. 20, so maybe around the time that Jesus was 20 years old, Hillel died. But it was common practice following Rabbi Hillel that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. He didn't even need cause. She didn't even need to break the covenant herself. If he found some, quote-unquote, indecency and, and found her displeasing, he would give her this document, this divorce paper saying that you're no longer my wife, that you're free to marry someone else if you want. And that's the way they did it. In fact, in, I think it's in, Mark, in Matthew's Gospel, the, the question of the Pharisees is put more clearly, is it all right for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? That's exactly what the tradition of Hillel taught. And so divorce was allowed, provided that the woman being sent away was given this divorce certificate so that she could marry again. And in the ancient times, there weren't lots of things that a woman could do like women do now. Women are professionals now and graduates of college and do all sorts, of run businesses and all of that. That wasn't available to women in ancient times. The relationship to the husband and the family and so forth was was critical for her to, to survive. And so this certificate was very, very important so that she wasn't just left out to hang. And in fact, it just sort of popped into my mind. You remember in, in John chapter 4, Jesus' discussion with the woman at the well. And... Um, he said to her, well, go call your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And he said, that's right. You've been married five times, and the guy you're with now isn't your husband. <laughs> I don't know all the circumstances as to why she was married five times. Uh, but Jesus said, uh, you've had five husbands. He wasn't saying you didn't. Oh, you, the only, only the first one was the real one or something like that. So this certificate was critical. The divorce certificate wasn't uh, meant uh, to make divorce uh, easy or generally acceptable, although it had that effect. It was really meant to soften the hardship that was placed upon the woman who was being sent away. But Jesus is clear that that none of this has anything to do with God's intent with regard to what marriage is supposed to be. Which then brings us to this second point, and that is marriage and God's creative intent. And Indeed, notice what Jesus says beginning at verse 6. In fact, just back up to 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he, Moses, wrote this commandment for you. Verse 6, but from the beginning, (laughs) from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, not send her away, hold fast to her, and they shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two individuals, but one unit, if you like, the closest of relatives, and what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. It's interesting, that last phrase is from Jesus. And um, in our own tradition, certainly I've done it as an Anglican of an Episcopal priest, and it was done at my wedding 31 years ago. And the priest leans forward and takes the stole that's around his neck, and he wraps the stole around the hands of the bride and the groom. And he clasps it and he looks to the congregation and he says, And what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. In the traditional languages, I remember it. And so, what Jesus teaches and what we believe relative to human sexuality and marriage is based in creation theology. Interestingly enough, this creation theology is reflected in all the traditional marriage rites of the church. In the marriage rite of the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which is the official Book of Common Prayer of the American Episcopal Church. The service begins, dearly beloved, we've come together in the presence of God to witness and bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation. (laughs) There it is. Where did we get that idea? And therefore, marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately, and in accordance with the purposes for which it was instituted by God. And so, Jesus says that God created human beings, male and female, and that God designed men and women for marriage, if that's their calling. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writing on the union of the man and woman, wrote this. He said, the Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism, one flesh just as a lock and key are one mechanism, or a violin and bow are one musical instrument. Male and female were made to be combined in pairs, not simply on a sexual level, but continually combined, totally combined. And then he goes on, he says, the problem with sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that it seeks to isolate one kind of union, sexual from all other kinds of union which were intended by God to go along with it to make up the total union. (laughs) And Jesus says that uh, God's intent for marriage in addition to these things is to be lifelong. Interestingly enough, this, this is also reflected in the traditional marriage rites of the church. In fact, I was thinking about this when uh, Linda and I were married according to the marriage rite of the Book of Common Prayer in 1990, it has been 31 years, I was asked by the priest, this, Scott, in front of 200 people or so, Scott, wilt thou have this woman to thy wedded wife to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Wilt thou love her, comfort her, honor her? and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep thee only unto her, so long as ye both shall live. (laughs) And I answered correctly. I said, I will. (laughs) And I have. (laughs) And I'm trying. (laughs) And then I was directed by the priest to take Linda by the hand, by the right hand, and repeat after him. And this is what he led me to say I, Scott, take thee, Linda, to my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death us do part. And this summer, Linda and Victoria and I went to a couple of weddings, they, two weddings, they, they weren't Anglican weddings as it happens, and still there were vows, and, and the, the vows were good at both of the weddings. They were sound Christian theology, they were biblically based, and of course I was absolutely delighted. Now it should be said that there are legitimate grounds for divorce. Jesus Himself in the Gospel of Matthew talks about a ground for divorce, namely adultery, Indeed, when the other partner basically breaks the covenant, the other partner is not bound by the covenant. It's been broken, it's been, it's been breached. Uh, and um, uh, the, Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 speaks of abandonment when, you're, when the spouse leaves you high and dry. He says, You're free to marry again. And he says, Of course, a Christian brother or sister, a believer. And no doubt there are other uh, legitimate uh, grounds for divorce, physical abuse, other kinds of abuse, circumstances that that place one of the partners in a constant state of danger or deprivation of one kind or another. But it would seem that not a few uh, marriages end in our country based on things that, if perhaps we were more honorable if we really took to heart the things that we say on the day of our wedding, if we were perhaps less selfish, we could work these things out. Because God's intent for marriage is to be lifelong, notwithstanding how challenging, how challenging marriage can be. In fact, uh, Ingrid uh, Trobisch wrote this, she said, there is only one thing harder than living alone, and she lived alone for quite some time. There's only one thing harder than living alone, and that's living with someone else. <laughs> Our actor, the actress, uh, Candace Bergen, she wrote this, I used to believe that marriage would diminish me, reduce my options, that you had to be something less to live with someone else, when of course you have to be something more. What a great observation. Of course, with approximately half of all marriages in the United States ending in divorce, divorce is part of the story for many of us. And so what to do? (laughs) Especially if you're married again. Well, you can live out this marriage that you have in the way that God intends. To love your spouse with agape love, self-sacrificing love. And honor your spouse. To forsake all others as long as the both of you shall live. To have and to hold your spouse from this day forward. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. Till you're parted in death. Because in most cases there isn't much you can do about the past, and something to remember is that divorce isn't the unpardonable sin. And the, but the present is yours, as it is mine, and so is the future. And even if things are challenging, and I don't know, I, my personal and certainly true for my poor wife, I don't know if there's anything more challenging than marriage, we mustn't ever forget God's intent for you and for me, as he stated through the prophet Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Marriage and divorce, God's creative intent. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the gift of marriage. It isn't easy, obviously. And maybe we don't always get very much help in preparing for it. I think perhaps in many cases we spend more time preparing for the wedding than we do for the marriage. And so it can be really, really hard. And This sometimes leads to divorce. But what lessons and what is it that you want to teach us about others and about ourselves and such experiences? And how can we take what we learn from those experiences into our present and into our future? To do marriage in the way that you always intended, and to experience the blessings that you also intend, which is not just that the spouse is always making me happy, but the spouse is always giving me an opportunity to be more like Christ. And so help us, Lord, to see things with perspective. Help us, Lord, not to be immobilized by shame or thoughts from the past that just keep haunting us but to see this day for what it is today and to live in the moment together with you and look to the future with hope because not only are you with us in the present, you are drawing us into a bright future. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.